But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Galatians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be camping out today, starting in about verse 4, and we'll get there in just a moment. We are in week two of our series on uh, our Advent series called God With Us, where we are exploring the beauty and the hope-inspiring reality of the incarnation of Christ Jesus. And remember from last week that incarnation is just a fancy word for the enfleshing of God. It's where the word became flesh or God incarnate. And so we're looking at the beauty, and the word incarnation is coming from the root word incarne. And those who are Spanish or know Spanish or Italian or anything like that will be very familiar, and I'm probably pronouncing wrong with the word carne, right? That's the word? Okay, I'm saying it right, which means flesh or meat. It reminds me of a time when I was living in New York City. I lived there for a few, uh, few years, and I went to an authentic Italian restaurant in Little Italy, and on the menu was pizza carne. And us being really good Bible college students were making incarnation pizza jokes the whole time, but that's okay. But what we see clearly is that this word carne or incarne in the, in the Greek is that it has to do with flesh. And this series is we're looking at the wonder and the beauty of God taking on flesh, coming as a man, humbling himself so that you and I would have hope in salvation. And at the end of the message today, we are going to be uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper. So that's just my little point. If you haven't got this, please go get it. And if you think about it, the incarnation, the word of God taking on flesh and blood that he might come, that he might live, that he might die for our sins so that we might be saved. And as you hold these symbols in your hands in just a few moment, minutes at the end of our sermon, you will be holding the very elements that represent the body, which is the bread, and the blood, which is the juice. You're holding the incarnation, the, the symbol nature of the incarnation in your hands and you're partaking of it together as a church because because there was an incarnation because God took on flesh we have the crucifixion if he didn't take on flesh we would never have the crucifixion which means we would never have the resurrection which means you would all be dead in your sins to this day it all goes hand in hand it's all part of God's plan. And when we come to the communion portion, I want you to have the incarnation drilled in your mind as the focus of your mind's eye, at the forefront of your mind. Let it bless you immensely as you hold these symbols. I want you to think of the manger. I want you to think of the baby boy who is the great I am laying in the manger, coming as flesh to die for you. Don't let that pass over you nonchalantly. Nobody got that joke? Come on, you didn't get the Passover joke? Come on, okay, uh, thank you. Don't let that pass over you nonchalantly. Jason's shaking his head. But what I want you to do is treasure it. I want you to revel in it. I want you to let it produce a fiery worship within your heart. This awesome and beautiful picture of God taking on flesh and dying for you. It all points us to the glory of our risen Lord. And this will produce worship and joy and renewed vision. And that's what I pray that we would have from this series, from Advent in general. 
that our vision, our perspective would be renewed. That we would see with fresh eyes the beauty of God and his incarnation. And when we do that, it produces a renewed worship in our souls. Something that is unwavering. Something that the world cannot touch. Which then gives you the foundation, the bedrock of a renewed joy that the enemy can't steal. Amen? Because, when, because we have this opportunity before us today. We have this opportunity as a church at large to have a renewed vision, a renewed worship, and a renewed joy. That's the purpose of Advent. And that's the goal of today's sermon, and that's the goal of the whole series at large. That together we would be renewed as a church. That our eyes would be focused not on the hustle and bustle, but on the risen and resurrected Lord. And I've always marveled at the theme of joy in Christmas. And it's my prayer that you would have a true sense of joy going into these holiday seasons. Because some of us right now, we're just disheartened. We're distracted, we're discouraged, we're fighting depression. Some of you have been devastated by different life events that have happened to you and circumstances that have arose. And all of that, all of that can be overcome by the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. Again, that doesn't mean trials aren't trials. That doesn't mean hardships aren't hard. It doesn't mean that the feelings and the emotions that you're feeling are not real. But what it does mean, if you remember back to our series in the Psalms, is it means that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than all of that. He is, who he is will eclipse your pain and your suffering in the shadow of his might. His might. And when that happens, when you focus, when you have a renewed perspective on who God is, it will enable you to joyfully worship through it all. Through it all. Those aren't just pleasant words to say. That's truth. You can worship through it all. He is greater than all the circumstances and all the situations that you find yourselves in. No matter how dark the night comes, the sun of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. Amen? So today, some of us are distracted. Some of you might be distant from the manger. You're far from Christ. You're discouraged. You're disheartened. And you have been devastated. And I pray that today, that joy would well up in your soul. That the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that is found in the Father through his sending of his Son in the incarnation would supersede all that you have in your mind, all the junk, all the things that are hurting you, all the things that are distracting you, that it would supersede it, overcome all of it. And you would be utterly convinced of this truth, that the closer you draw to him, the closer he draws to you. I didn't even have to put that amen that I wrote there. Someone got it for me. So with that premise said again, for this series, I want to officially begin with our text today. And that's found in Galatians 4, 4-7. And some of you are probably thinking, if you know your Bible pretty well, in incarnation text, we're looking at Galatians 4, really? But what's amazing about a Galatians 4 is that it's a very vital incarnation text. And our theme today, as we look at the incarnation, is we're looking at the theme that Christ was sent in flesh to set us free. Galatians 4, 4 to 7 says this. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, the Lord sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. What a powerful verse. And if a son, then an heir through God. I want us to see a few things that will renew our minds today, right away, regarding Christmas, specifically of the incarnation, just from the first half of verse 4. We're just going to quickly walk through just the first half of verse 4. And the first thing we see is God's timing. And there's a fundamental truth about God's timing, and that's this. God is never late. Okay? Your impatience doesn't mean God is late. Your impatience, rather, should be showing you that it's a sin, that it's something that you're not content with. You're not trusting in God fully that he will come through when he said he would and not you think he should. It's, it's, a, sinful, it's a sinful sign that you are not content in confessing that God is smarter than you are. How many know that? Okay, he's smarter than me, he's smarter than you. Our impatience is a form of sin that shows us that we're failing to trust him. God is never late. God has perfect timing. And verse 4 shows us when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. God knew the right time to, to, to send his son. I remember asking uh, my parents growing up, like, why didn't Christ come now when we were alive? Because God knew the right time to send his son. He didn't send him a few years earlier. He didn't send him a few years later. He sent him at the precise time because God is absolutely in charge and God has perfect timing. When the time was right, God sent forth his son. He knew precisely which time to do it. And this should give you hope because if he has perfect time for his son, that means as sons and daughters of the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father, you are also... He also, sorry, has perfect time for you as well as his children. This is an application point for us right off from the beginning. His timing is perfect. So can you as an individual or a family take a step back from whatever that situation is that you're dealing with? And can you go, Lord, you're in charge. I know, I know your timing is perfect. I know that I would, I would do it here and I probably would have did it this way. Confess those things. But I know, Lord, that you see everything, that you're not ignoring me, that you, nothing is beyond your control. I know that your will and your timing is perfect, and you are perfect, Lord, so I submit to you in this situation. I submit my life, my circumstances, all to you, and I choose to trust you now, opposed to just running around trying to play the God card, that take it all in your own hand, making things happen against the plans of the Lord, and complaining to everyone who will listen because your life's a wreck. It's powerful when we choose to live this way. It's, some, it's something that's attainable by every single believer sitting here today. It's not something that's unattainable. It's not like a donut on a string and you're on a treadmill trying to run for it. You can attain this. You can live contently in the timing of the Lord. It's not easy, but it is attainable. And when it comes through, it's powerful. It's powerful when we choose to live this way. So... So we see that God has perfect timing. He's never late. And the second thing we observe from verse 4 is that, uh, you might have to click back on to the PowerPoint, uh, that God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign. God is in, uh, in charge. So according to Galatians 4, who is in charge? God is, right? Who is in control? God is. Who is deciding? God is. 
who is orchestrating all of the events of the Christmas story, let alone all the other events of the universe, God is. And it's marvelous to see God's sovereignty reigning over every single aspect of the Christmas story, especially relating to the incarnation. It's marvelous to see that, whether it's the shepherds, or if it's the angels, or the wise men, or Mary, or Elizabeth, or John the Baptist, he is in control of every single detail. God in his sovereignty decided that all of time is centered on his son. Because the entire universe is centered on his son. We looked at that last week. The incarnation was so uh, transformative that it impacted the way the world even dated itself. Right? How do we date? B.C. and A.D. What does B.C. stand for? What does A.D. stand for? Someone got it. Anno Domini, right? Anno Domini, however you say it. It's Latin, and it means in the year of our Lord. Now, I know they've changed it to BCE and ACE before Common Era and after Common Era because they're trying to get away from the Christ thing. But at the end of the day, you look into that just a little bit, and something happened so transformative that it changed everything. You, it's, yeah, it's separated time. And you can't get away from that no matter what you call it. Jesus changed everything because God is sovereign. Revel in that church and rest in his sovereignty and let it produce for you a great joy and a response of worship that comes deep from within your soul and life because everything from as big details of the incarnation of God taking on flesh to the small details of where you might lay your head tonight come dealt out from the hands of God are all held in his wonderful, grace-filled, love-filled hands. What a truth. So we have looked at God's timing, and we looked at his sovereignty, and we see that God knows all and sees all. And if you have this improper understanding that God has to look down the corridors of time to learn, that's improper. God doesn't have to look down the corridors of time to learn anything. God knows everything, including your salvation. God didn't look down the corridors of time and say, well, I think Aaron's going to choose me, so I'm going to choose him first. That's improper. God decrees everything that has happened in this earth. Everything that goes on. And we can, that should produce joy and peace in our hearts because it gives us that this is all coming from a loving father. He doesn't look down any corridor of time and learn anything. He knows it all and decrees it all. And he knows the end. And it's not going to catch him by surprise. Amen? So that's God's timing, his sovereignty, and now we will zero in on God's mercy. God's mercy. When the fullness of time has come, God sent his son. And what I want you to pick up from that is I want you to see God's plan for redemption. God sending his son wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a fly-by-the-seams-of-your-pants decision. The father didn't wake up one day and go, Hey, you know what, Jesus? I'm going to send you to earth. You might, you're going to be born of a virgin. You're going to grow up a little bit. And then you're going to take a survey. You're going to assess the situation. You might have to die. I'm not sure yet. We're going to figure that out. But depending on what your survey says, you might have to die. Maybe not. We'll see how bad the situation is. No, this was the plan of God from the beginning. This is what God had decreed from the foundations of the earth. That's why the Bible says that Jesus was slain 
from the foundations of the earth. He knew it. He decreed that this would happen. We see it even in the Genesis account. When after they fall, what happens? God says, from you will come a male who will crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent will bruise his heel. Who is that? That's Jesus. He knew. He already made a way. He also killed animals and made clothing for them as a sign of a blood offering already right there in Genesis. It was all laying down the foundation going towards the New Testament when the perfect lamb would come in flesh and would live the life you couldn't live, that you should be living because God is perfect and demands perfection, but he knows we can't. So he sends the perfect lamb to live it and die the death we should have and rose on our behalf. What a truth. There was no plan B. No plan B. And there's still no plan B. This was the plan from the beginning. And it's hinted at all over Scripture. Christ coming to die. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son for you and me. And that's mercy. That's love. And that's grace. Look again at verse 4 in its fullness. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman under the law. So here again, church, we have that theological concept that I introduced last week called the hypostatic union. And that's talking about the nature of Christ, that he is one God, one person, two natures. And there's no mixture. One doesn't overbear the other. One person, two natures, truly God and truly man. No mixture. So can you see that in this verse where Jesus is labeled truly God and truly man? Look at it again closer with me. God sent forth his son, which is a title for the son of God. God himself came in flesh, fully God, truly God. And then he was born of a woman, fully man, fully man. So right here in this verse, we have the reality of the two natures of Christ. One person, two natures, truly God, truly man. And the phrase born of a woman is placed there to communicate the incarnation fact of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says to the church in Galatia that he was born under the law. Why did he say that? Okay, you ready? It's time to sit up. We're going to use our minds. You're going to smack yourself a little bit. Hit your neighbor, don't do that. Um, But make sure they're awake. We're going to use our minds uh, uh, as we walk through this. Uh, Here again is the staggering humility of Christmas. We are going to use our minds this morning. So Jesus is the one who gave the law, right, because he is God. He gave the law. The one who gave the law now dwells on earth as fully God and fully man places himself under that same law that he has given, that he might live a perfect life to fulfill the very law that he decreed. Are you tracking? The one who gives the law because he demands perfection, puts himself under the law, then he fulfills that law so that he might meet the demands of the law, that he might become a curse under that same law on our behalf to save us in a way that we could never save us. That's just awesome. Like I could end the sermon here and that should demand all of our worship right there. That God placed himself, humbled himself so much by not even just taking on flesh, but taking on flesh and putting himself under the very law that he placed and watched his people fail time and time and time again. It's a bewildering truth of the incarnation. 
And I told you each week as we go through the sermon, I'm going to attempt to give you lyrics from different uh, carols, different Christmas carols that pull on, have just rich theology. The carols have rich theology. Like If you don't like carols, just look at the theology and they will make you love them. Joy to the world expresses this truth better than any other carol. Just look at these words. It says, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Right? The curse. Thorns infesting the ground. This is Genesis right there. This is the Bible. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is found. The serpent's head is crushed. Jesus comes. You think thorns and weeds spread fast? His blessing spreads faster. It spreads faster than the curse. He comes to save the world from its sin. And here's my question. Are you sick of sin? Are you tired of sin? Because we so easily enter into it. And immediately we feel the regret of that sin. We just feel like junk. It's kind of like when you're hungry and you're driving past McDonald's and it seems like a good idea to eat there. And it tastes so good. And then you got the McBrick sitting in your stomach. <laughs> and you just feel like junk. If the Drumheller owners of McDonald's are watching this, I apologize. <laughs> but it just makes you feel like junk. Aren't you sick of sin? Sin is killing you. That's what sin does. It's devastating relationships with others. But it doesn't have to be that way, church. He's come to make his blessings flow far as the curse of sin is found. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus has come to set you free from that sin. You don't have to go back to it. Some of us as Christians, we don't live victorious lives. We live defeated lives. He has taken the chains off. He's broken down the prison walls. But we're just still sitting in that prison cell. And some of us haven't gone up to just check the door and we haven't noticed that it's unlocked. You don't have to be bound to the bondage of sin. He has set you free. In fact, look at the context of our verse today in Galatians uh, by looking at verse 13 of chapter 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. He has come as a curse so that you are no longer cursed. You don't have to keep running back to those old wells of sin. Because they don't hold water anyways. They're broken cisterns. Run to the living water today, church, that never runs dry. Amen? This is why he came, born under the law, to fulfill the law, to become a curse for us in the law, to take on our sin that we might be set free from sin when we believe through faith by grace. That's a pretty good deal. It's a pretty good offer. So notice what's happening here in Galatians 4 so far. We have incarnation fact, right? We have God sent his son, fact. We have born of a woman, Fact. We have truly God and truly man. Fact. Born under that law and all those reasons of fulfilling the law. Fact. And now we're going to move from incarnation fact to incarnation fruit. How does it impact our lives? How does it impact the world? And this is found in verses 5, 6, and 7. And as we look at the fruit of the incarnation, the question we're really going to be grappling with is this. Why Christmas? Why was Jesus sent? Why the incarnation? 
And the first answer to that question is this. God sent forth his son that he might redeem us from our sins. That he might, oh, I didn't realize I had a slide, sorry. Redeem us from our sins. Redeem you from your sins. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. So why was Jesus sent? He was sent to redeem those under the law. What does redeem mean? Redeem means to purchase out of. Redeem means to buy back from. It's more than just rescuing. It's rescuing by buying someone out of slavery. That's what redeem means. Jesus, as our redeemer, paid our ransom. He purchased us and he gave us life. This is why he came. This is why he came to live perfectly and die so that you might be redeemed. That I might be redeemed. This is why the incarnation carries so much joy with the church. Because when Christ arrives on earth, it means the payment for our sins has arrived. It means that our freedom has arrived. You know, freedom has been the subject of the news for the past two years or so. And don't get me wrong, we should stand up for our freedoms and all that stuff. But this is the freedom, that true freedom that we have as Christians. No matter what the government does, no matter what they do to the church, we are free in Christ. Amen? Freedom has arrived when the baby laid in the manger. Our purchase for our rescue, our redeeming, has arrived when Jesus laid in the manger. Our freedom has arrived in Christ. So as you're opening up your presence this season, may we also take time as individuals and families to reflect upon Galatians 4 or 5, which shows us the greatest gift we could have ever, ever received, the gift of God's Son taking on flesh, living a perfect life and dying our death that we deserve so that we might be saved. This gift is of eternal value. It is full and complete redemption in Jesus Christ. That any temporal gift couldn't even hold a match to it. It pales in comparison to the gift of our redemption, the salvation from our sin. Feel the joy, church. Feel the joy of this gift. Feel the joy of your salvation. Don't just casually take this in. Rejoice over the fact that God became man so that you wouldn't have to suffer under the wrath of God in hell. Rejoice. Don't be embarrassed to rejoice. Don't be embarrassed to get excited over this. This is your life. Get excited, church. This is amazing. It makes me think of the lyrics of O Holy Night when it says, The weary world rejoices. Well, of course it does. The world was under so much weight of sin and law. It was under all of that, and then freedom breaks through. It dawns. The incarnation, the breaking of the new and glorious morn. This is why the Bible, Malachi 4, describes prophetically Jesus as Christ's birth as the Son of Righteousness. Not S-O-N, but S-U-N, like the sun in the sky. Jesus Christ rises like the sun of righteousness, just like the sun rises in the morning and dawn breaks through the cold, dark night. This is our source of joy. That Dawn has broken when the baby laid in the manger. The sun began to rise. This is our thrill of hope. That we have been redeemed from our sins in Jesus Christ. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Why? To redeem us. Second, 
to adopt us as his own. So we go from redemption now to adoption. Look at verse 5 again with me. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So what we see is the implications of our verse is if you're redeemed, it means you're adopted. They're a link. They're inseparable. If you're redeemed, you're adopted as a son and daughter of the Lord. He uses son because if I can be the bride of Christ, you can also be the son of God, right? Okay, is that good? So, um, uh, so you're adopted as sons and daughters of Christ. Now, this is the power of the doctrine of adoption. Because if you're a child of God, it means you're no longer a slave. You're no longer a slave to fear. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to the law or to the world. Because you are God's and he is yours and he doesn't share. God doesn't share. He doesn't play nice in the sandbox. He wants all of you. He doesn't just want weekend visits, right? He wants all of you. You are safe, and you are secure, and you cannot lose your adoption in Christ because he has already won it and purchased it. You are the sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, and he lives within you through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he empowers you to live victoriously in his name. Victoriously in his name. Yes, life is hard. Yes, there are trials all around you. But at the end of the day, you are secure and you are safe because you are his. You are his and he is yours, church. That is more than just some tacky little ornament you hang on your tree. That's truth. He, you are his and he is yours. Just let the doctrine of the adoption, uh, sorry, just let the doctrine of adoption just produce worship. Because when you look at adoption in the Roman world, when a family adopted a child, that child came in not one iota, not one ounce inferior to the biological children in the family. The status of the adopted child was completely equal to the other biological children. And friends, if you are in Christ, the same is true about you through adoption. Get this, your status as a child of God, according to the Bible, is the same as the inheritance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You are a co-heir with Christ. So let the doctrine of adoption just bless you. What an amazing about your adoption is that nothing can steal that from you. It's secure in Christ. It's not dependent upon your looks, your skills, your performance. It's rep- uh, dependent upon the works of Christ. And those are perfect Those don't fail. Mine do. Yours do. And if you could mess it up, get this, you would have already. But it's dependent on Christ. God, who knew all of your sin, he knew all of your darkest thoughts and actions, that thing that you said, I'm going to take to the grave and never share with anyone. He saw that. And he said, that, in my love, in my love, that is my child. That is my son. That is my daughter. And I'm going to die for them to adopt them. And it gets even better than that. As we've hinted at, nothing can steal this adoption from you. Your status as a child of God is secure in Christ. You can't mess it up. Jesus has saved you. You are saved because Jesus holds tightly to you, not because you hold tightly to Jesus. Going back to our scripture today, we see what happens, the beauty of our adoption. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts To cry out, Abba, Father. Crying out, Abba, Father. God sent his son in verse 4. And then in verse 6, we see God sending the spirit of his son. 
So what do we know from this? What are we learning? If, you are tr- if you've truly received the Son by faith, that means you have also received the Spirit of God in your heart. There's no exceptions. There's no gaps. If you are saved, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. It comes at redemption. It comes at salvation. Not at a second service where you have to have someone lay hands on you and then, oh, magically you're now a full Christian. No, when you are saved, the Spirit of God invades your life and empowers you to live the life that Christ has called you to. There's no gaps. Anyone who tells you that is not worth your time, they're a liar. And when you're regenerated, you receive the Spirit of God. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can't separate them. So by looking at verse 6, we must ask the question, what is the proof of our adoption? The proof of that you are adopted is God has sent the Spirit in your heart. So if you don't have the Spirit, you're not adopted. So you can't separate them. Now, what's the proof that you have God's Spirit, you might ask? Well, the proof that you have God's Spirit, according to Galatians 4, 6, is intimacy with the Father. He has sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, is a powerfully intimate term of endearment taken both from Greek and and Aramaic for Father. No slave would ever address the head of the household as Abba, Father. That would be entirely inappropriate. But that is a term that we have in our hearts to cry out to the Lord. It's reserved for children to their father. It's a wonderful term of endearment of children to their fathers. Now the Spirit is sent into our hearts that we might cry a loud and earnest cry of Abba, Father. So what are we learning from this? Well, we know that we have been adopted. And I know that I've been adopted because God's Spirit is in my heart. And I know that I have God's Spirit in my heart through an authentic and genuine relationship of love with the Father. A relationship of intimacy. So this is a good time for you just to step back and self-reflect for a minute like Paul tells us to do. And examine yourself and check. Do you actually have a genuine, authentic relationship of intimacy with the Father? I don't care if you're the toughest guy in this room. Or, or woman, because you can all beat me up probably, or the most tender child in this room. Every single person who is genuinely in a relationship with the Lord in some way, in some form, will cry out with their lives, Abba, Father. And it will look different for everyone. It's not a statement of religion. It's an expression of true relationship with the Father. Do you truly love the Lord? Why did you come to Christ? So you have, quote-unquote, fire insurance? Is it for what you can get from the Lord? Because if that's true, you're going to stand before God one day and you're going to hear these words. Depart from me because I never knew you. But you come to him through authentic love. Do you truly have a relationship where you're interacting and crying out in your life, throughout your life, and to the Lord because you love Jesus? That is the single greatest sign of genuinely being saved. That you have a love for God. That you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Now don't hear me wrong. Not perfectly. I'm not saying that you can't make any mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. But the fact is that it's all secured. Your salvation is secured, as I said, on the works of Christ, not yours. But that your life has a a trajectory of going towards God and not away from him. This is why the first fruit, and before one of you guys come up and correct me after, I know it's fruit, not fruits, but this is why in the first fruit in the list, and the list is important, is love. Love for the Lord and love for others. Do you have it? 
Because it says right here, if you're truly adopted, you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you have a love for the Father. It's like this. When I come home from work at 5 every day, I open the door and Levi drops everything he's doing. He runs to me and he says, Daddy's home! And he runs and he jumps and I hug him. And in that moment, there is no question of who that child belongs to. He belongs to me. That's my son, and I'm his father. Now, when it's 4 a.m. and it's the third time he's come to my bed, that's a different question. I don't know whose he is. That's his mom's child at that moment. (laughs) But in all seriousness, church, there should be no question in our lives If we follow the Lord Jesus Christ and belong to the Father, there should be no question in our lives whatsoever who we belong to by the way we cry out, Abba, Father. By the way we run to God and nothing else, no other source, just as Levi runs to me. Do you have it? Do you have real life? Some of you here right now, it's just about religion. It's just about doing religious stuff. And it's not about communing with God. Some of you here right now, you've never had true life invade your life and your heart. There's never been a true love or affection. It's just been purely about religious things, doing good works, trying to earn salvation. But that's a fruitless endeavor. That's a fruitless endeavor and it won't save you. You are not saved by your efforts. You are saved by the efforts of Jesus. You're not saved because you don't miss a church service. You're not saved because you're going to join Dean's Bible study and not miss one day. You're not saved because when you stubbed your toe, you said, oh my goodness, rather than a swear word. You're saved because Jesus lived your life for you and died for you and rose for you. God sent his son to redeem you and God sent his son to adopt you as his own and God sent his son to make you an heir. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Notice the progression. Slave, son, heir. Right there should just demand all our worship. A slave to an heir. We were in slavery, but we were in chains of darkness. And Christ came to break those chains and set us free through Christ. We are sons of God, but not just sons and daughters of God by title. We are truly sons and daughters of God through his proven heirship on our behalf. The Bible says we are co-heirs with Christ. So I'm going to end with this. The question that we began with this message. What are you looking at? What are you, what is, where is your vision? Where is your perspective? What are you worshiping right now with your life? And where is your joy? And really what it comes down to is the incarnation. Where are you in relation to Jesus Christ today? Are you distant? Are you distracted? You know where he is, you know where you should be going, but instead you're looking all around. You have spiritual ADHD, right? You're all over the place. And you're looking at everything but Christ. And some of us are disinterested. And some of us are disheartened. And some of us have been devastated by events in our lives. And the enemy has convinced you that God doesn't care about you anymore. And all along, we're looking at all these different things. And we're not looking to the one who shows us just how much God cares by sending his son. Some of us could be dead in our sin. And we have never truly looked to Christ. But I'm praying that this church would be filled with people who are devoted, 
And as we are devoted, you would draw near. And as you draw near, you will see with your own eyes and worship and begin to understand that there are some very powerful truths that we are looking at today. And the first thing that happens when you understand that God has sent forth his son, then you will understand that first he came to redeem you. And not only did he come to redeem you, but he has adopted you and called you his own. But not only has he adopted you and made you his own, but he's also pronounced you as a co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ because of the love and mercy of God. And when you understand that, why the child in the manger came, it causes the rest of life to make sense. So where are you today, church, in relation to Christ? Are you far or are you drawing near? And as you draw near and marvel at these truths that we have just talked about, what it will do is it will renew your vision. You will put all of life in focus, which will produce a renewed worship. And it will build to renewed joy and renewed purpose in the Lord. Amen.